we watch these disciples follow, we will follow in the same way and be like Jesus Christ in our world. Now, I've always had a real interest in electronical kind of things. I've always enjoyed stereo equipment and digital cameras and computers and televisions, phones, the whole thing. I just like electronical kind of stuff. And to show you how wrapped up I get in these things, it actually can take up to four remotes just to turn our TV on, which Sandy loves that whole idea. She has no idea how to turn the TV on because not sure which remote goes first and so forth. Now, after I've had one of these things for a while or something new comes out, I begin to plan on getting that new thing, whatever it is. Now, obviously, these things aren't cheap and I'm not wealthy, but neither of those facts stop me from trying to find a way to get this newest gadget, whatever it might be. And so I plan and I figure and I look for the best deals. And then I present this foolproof, false plan to Sandy. Now, Sandy has no interest in any of this stuff. I think if Sandy could, she'd still have a flip phone if she was able to pull that off. So she has no concern about any of these electronical things. And so when I talk about this stuff to her, I can sort of watch the glaze just kind of go over her eyes. Just the receptors all kind of die out, and she has no clue or interest in what I'm talking about. So I've got to talk faster than I normally do before she glazes over, and I, she, I don't get through uh, what, she, what I want to tell her. Otherwise, I've got to start this presentation to her all over again at some other time. And this stuff is just too important to do twice. You've got to say it one time and get it done, you know. So I get all done telling her why I want this thing. Not, not, not just that I want this thing, why we need this thing. This is a, this is a need, you see. And I present all this to her. What do you suppose her first question is? How much is this going to cost? <laughs> how, how did all you wives know that? <laughs> now, listen, what kind of a question is that? I mean, seriously. I mean, we need this thing. Uh, it, it, I figured it all out. Why would cost even be a consideration? Well, as much as that question does frustrate me, she really needs to ask that question to sort of rein me back in. Otherwise, I go, you know, half cocked off on this stuff. Uh, that's exactly the kind of question the disciple that we're considering this morning would ask. We were looking at Philip this morning. Uh, Philip, as we found, as we started this series a few weeks ago, he was the, always the fifth person listed in the list of disciples. Uh, it looks like he was the leader of the second tier, the second group of disciples. And although his role seems minor compared to those of the others, uh, Andrew and Peter and John and James and so forth, we really do see that Philip was a leader in his own right in that second group. Uh, that name Philip actually is a Greek name, and it means lover of horses. Uh, and many in, that, uh, many in that day would take on Greek names because they took on so much of the Greek culture. They took on Greek names as well. And so for whatever reason, Philip used that name exclusively. He, if he ever had a Jewish name as well, we don't know what that Jewish name is because he never used it. It was never recorded for us. There are strong indications that Philip was also a fisherman like those we've already studied. In fact, it's possible that almost half of the disciples were fishermen. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. Uh, that makes a point that we don't want to miss as we go through this study. These men that Jesus Christ called were just ordinary men with unexceptional talents and basic average abilities. The task at hand that Jesus Christ was assigning to them was to, to communicate to the world the greatest message that would ever be heard. And with that in mind, Jesus Christ looked at these guys and said, they'll do. Good enough. That's all I need. And that brings us to a point that I want to make again. If you've been in church at all in your life, you've heard this before. I'm going to repeat it to you because it is so important for us to keep in mind. All that Jesus Christ required of these disciples was availability. That's the only ability that they needed was availability. If they were available, he would train them and gift them and empower them to serve him. They simply needed to be willing to do it. And in fact, with a message that they would be given and with the resistance they would receive from, from presenting it, who better to do that than a group of rugged fishermen? 
Jesus Christ obviously knew exactly what he was doing when he called those guys. Listen to me. When God calls you to do something, and he will if he hasn't already, when God calls you to do something, don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out why and how he called you. Don't spend time wondering why God called you when he could have called somebody else much more and much better equipped than you are. When God appoints you to a task, when God calls you to do something, just say yes and let him do all the rest and handle all the details. Uh, We will probably never understand God's plan. And thankfully, we are not called to understand God's plan. We are simply called to be a part of that plan that he calls us to. He will handle everything else if you will simply say yes when God calls you. Now, all we know about Philip comes from the Gospel of John. We have no details about Philip from any other gospel except the Gospel of John. And what we learn is that Philip was unique and different from all the other apostles. And that primarily is why I brought, uh, started this message the way I did this morning. Philip was a process kind of guy. Philip dealt with the facts and the figures. He was practical. He was corporate. He was narrow-focused and one who always missed the big picture because he was focused on all the details. He was the guy who, no matter what brilliant idea was presented, would always ask the question, how much does this cost? <laughs> how much does this cost? Now, that's where my comparison with Sandy ends, because Philip was also the kind of person who is always finding reasons why something can't be done, as opposed to finding reasons why it could be done. He was very pragmatic. He was not much of a visionary. And we'll consider this more uh, in just a few moments as we continue on through the message this morning. We first meet Philip in John chapter 1, what we read this morning. I want you to look at verse 43 again, if you would. John chapter 1, verse 43. It says, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now, the other three disciples we've looked at up to this point that are there this uh, this day uh, sought Jesus out. They had been directed to do that and sought him out because John the Baptist told them to. In Philip's case, Jesus Christ sought him out. And Philip is the first one to actually hear the words of Jesus Christ spoken, follow me. Philip was actually the first one to actually obey the command to follow that Jesus Christ gave. Now, due to Philip's immediate response, it's clear that he was prepared to respond when the call came. And we further see that in verse 45. Drop down there if you would. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip apparently had been studying the Old Testament scriptures. He was well aware a Messiah was to come. In fact, that's why the disciples went to see John the Baptist out in the wilderness in the first place. They knew from the book of Isaiah and also from the book of Zechariah that there was going to be a forerunner to the Messiah that would present the Messiah to the nation of Israel. And they came to that wilderness that day to see if John the Baptist was that forerunner. And everything lined up for them just like scripture foretold. And so Philip shows two characteristics here the moment he met the Lord Jesus Christ. He showed that he had a seeking heart, and he showed that he had an evangelist heart. A seeking heart and the heart of an evangelist. In other words, Philip sought out Jesus, he met Jesus Christ, and then he wanted others to meet Jesus Christ as well. And those are the two qualities that are built in to the makeup of a disciple. A disciple must seek Jesus. That is, they must want Jesus Christ to be the lead and the guide in their lives. They must be willing to follow him on whatever path he takes them on. And then once they commit that, they begin to seek out others to be followers as well. They must have a heart to introduce others, friends, neighbors, perfect strangers to Jesus Christ. And if we don't have those two desires, if those aren't part of our makeup, if it does not make up what we are, we are Christians, but we're not yet disciples. 
We are believers. We're on our way to heaven. We're just not true followers yet because true followers, true disciples seek to follow Jesus Christ. And then they seek others to follow Jesus Christ as well. Now, it can't, we can't help but be struck with Philip's amazement when he discovers that the Messiah is uh, who the Messiah is. Look as Philip, I, I, his, go to verse 45 again. It says, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They're surprised by the fact that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is the one who Moses wrote about. This is the one who the prophets wrote about. This Messiah is a son of a lowly carpenter. Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In other words, it seems pretty impossible that this Messiah, this one that we've been waiting for, this one who's going to rescue Israel from the rule of the Romans and is going to set up God's kingdom, this Messiah comes from a small, nondescript village like Nazareth. And that's when Philip gives the words that should be on the lips of every disciple who wants to do the work of the Lord. Again, look at the last part of verse 46. Philip saith unto him, come and see, come and see. Philip was completely convinced that Jesus Christ was the one who had come to save them. He may be a carpenter's son. He may be from Nazareth to Philip. That was all immaterial. Philip had read the scripture. He had read the Old Testament promises. He knew the Messiah was coming. He was fully ready to receive him no matter who he was or where he came from. Philip had no doubt. He had no reluctance. He was simply willing to follow and believe. And with that as the foundation, he says to Nathaniel, Come and see. Come and see. In other words, if you'll come and meet him, you will be as convinced as I am that he's the one. Folks, those words, those three little words, come and see, really sum up our evangelistic effort. All that we need to do is to get people to see Jesus Christ for themselves. It's not in our presentation. It's not all the Bible that we know, all the verses we've memorized. Those may be helpful, but that's not going to do it. It's not us giving convincing argument, convincing responses, rather, to all the arguments against trusting Jesus Christ. Our goal as evangelists in this world is simply to get people to come and see. Come and see. Our presentation is this. Here is the, who he claims to be. Here is what he claims to be. Here's what he claims he can do. Here's what I found about him by trusting him. Come and see if he'll do the same thing for you as well. Come and see if he'll convince you like I'm convinced. All that we need to do is get them to the Savior. Get them to see Jesus Christ. He does all the work after that. We've got to let go of this idea, folks, that I think many people aren't the witnesses they need to be because they put it all on themselves. That's not the case. It's not our effort. It's not our knowledge that convinces people to trust Jesus Christ. Just get them to Jesus. Just get them to him. He'll convince them and do all the rest. If I will do my part, Jesus Christ will certainly do his part. And by the way, the power of that approach is seen in the life of Philip. Philip was an unemotional, doubtful, reserved skeptic. But when he met Jesus Christ... All of that was overwhelmed by who Jesus Christ was. Just get them to Jesus. If they are seeking, they will be convinced of who he is. Now, there are three events in, involving Philip that give us a glimpse into his character and show us why God called him and why he fulfilled the calling that God gave him to be a disciple. And I want to focus on those three events today as we finish our time here this morning. Now, the first is found in John chapter 6. So go to John chapter 6, if you would, and we will start there. 
John chapter 6 is John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, we talked about this event a few weeks ago when we studied Andrew. I want to see that same event now through the eyes of this disciple this morning, through the eyes of Philip. We have seen the spiritual side of Philip in John chapter 1. We've seen him prepared for the Messiah and willing to believe who Jesus Christ was. Now I want you to see Philip's natural side, his human side. Because what we find in Philip is that although he was a man of faith, in his early years as a disciple, he was a man of weak faith, not strong faith. Now again, Jesus Christ pulls away from the multitude. He wants to spend some time alone with the disciples. Somehow the people found out where he was and met him at the place where he had gathered his disciples. I'm sure that you're aware that this feeding of the 5,000, calling it that, is really inaccurate. We're told in John chapter 6, verse 10, the group was made up of 5,000 men. That number does not include women or children. It's possible there were several thousand more there, maybe even up to 10 or 20,000 total. Now, the evening is approaching, and the people who are there need to eat. And Jesus Christ took it upon himself to feed that crowd. Look at verse 5. It says, When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, notice he didn't direct this question to all the disciples. He directed that question specifically to Philip. And verse 6 tells us why he did that. Look at verse 6. And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. He was putting Philip under a test. Uh, We talked about tests this morning. In fact, Matt talked about tests this morning. Most people don't like taking tests. Well, think about taking a test from the Son of God. (laughs) Just put yourself in that position, taking a test that the creator of the universe has set up for you. That is exactly what we have going on here with Philip. He is putting Philip under a test. Now, Philip must have been the accountant of the group because he he must have been the supply chain kind of guy. He's the one who managed all the logistics of whatever it was that they needed to do. Uh, Judas was in charge of holding the money. Philip must have been the one who determined if they had enough to do whatever it was that they needed to do. So whether he was asked to do it or just took it upon himself, he was the one to keep things organized. And for Philip, nothing should be done unless it made sense. Nothing should be done unless there was a clear, logical path that would get them wherever they determined to go. And so Jesus Christ says, I'm going to test him. Let's see how this goes. Jesus was not testing him to see what he was thinking. Jesus already knew what he was thinking. And he wasn't really asking him for a plan. Jesus Christ knew exactly what he was going to do. The test was all about Philip revealing Philip to himself. Philip needed to be confronted with how he thought about things that seemed impossible. And so Jesus Christ turns to the organization guy and says to him, how do you propose we feed all these people? It wasn't a matter whether or not we're going to do it. We're going to feed them. He's asking Philip, how are we going to do this? Now, my guess is, just knowing how Philip was, he had already begun to count heads already working on a figure of how many people were there and what it would take to feed them all. He was already aware there was not enough food available in that desert to feed a crowd even close to that size. And so look at his response in verse 7. Philip answered him, A 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. Now, look at that for a moment. That's Philip's response. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has asked him a question, and Jesus is standing right there with him as he answers. Now, he could have answered that question in one of two ways. He could have said, Lord, it's a big crowd, and we have no food here at all. But I've seen you do miracles before. I know nothing with you is impossible. So here is one more chance for you to do something miraculous and blow the socks off everybody who's here. (laughs) 
It may seem impossible to us. There may be no answer to this that meets my calculations. But none of that matters because you're here. What a tremendous opportunity for, to see the power of God displayed for us once again. Philip could have responded that way. Here's the other response he could have given, and it's the one, unfortunately, that he gave. Lord, it's impossible. There's just no way to do it. I mean, I've done all the calculations. I've gone over it in several different ways. I keep coming up with the same result. We simply don't have enough money or food here to make it happen. It is a great idea. I wish there was a way to make it happen. We simply don't have the resources. There is no feasible way to get it done. Now, here's what I've learned. If you've been in church very long at all, you probably learned this as well. Every organization and every church has one or a few people in it who find it as their gift and their calling to show why things can't be done. <laughs> no matter what the idea is presented, no matter what goal is set, there's always at least one person there who knows exactly why it can never go that way. And it, no matter how it's set up, it can't be done, if at all. <laughs> Now, that approach makes a little more bit, uh, sense in the business setting. In those situations, it's, it's all about the bottom line and the physical resources available. So I get that. And it's even true in church to some extent. I mean, we don't want to make decisions or take certain courses that, uh, without using the skills and wisdom God has given us uh, to make the right decision. But in the Lord's work, there is another factor involved. The factor is God. <laughs> God's involved. And God involved makes all the difference in the world. Things that make no sense whatsoever from a human point of view or from a business perspective make perfect sense if you put God into the equation. Suddenly it all fits together and it all makes sense. Things that should never be done in a business become exactly the right thing to do when God gives the freedom to lead the way. And oftentimes those in church who can always find a reason not to do something are simply lacking the faith to let God be God. Just let God be God. And we as a church and we as individuals, I am convinced, miss seeing God do some amazing things because we confine ourselves to what makes most sense and what makes sense from a human point of view. And I'm going to tell you, you can't do that with God involved. You simply can't do that. That's what Philip was in danger of here as he responded to the Lord the way he did. And by the way, just to make it clear, Philip was right. <laughs> Philip was right. There was no way to do that from a human point of view. They did not have the resources available there to make it happen. They couldn't do it by the, by the, the normal way. Uh, Philip says we got so much money in the treasury. That money in the treasury was what a common laborer would make for about eight months worth of work. And the money needed there was for all the supplies, all the physical needs of the disciples. That was the treasury for that group. Philip says we can't spend all this because if we spend all this, we won't meet our own needs down the road. And so I'm sure in Philip's mind, he's saying to himself, let me see, what can I buy cheap? What can I call Amazon for? Maybe it chipped here quickly, some, some cheap food or whatever that would feed all these people. I could buy 20 barley biscuits. Uh, barley's cheap. I, I can get that pretty cheap. I can cut them in pieces. I give eaten. Nah, he, it's just not going to work. There's no way I can do this, Philip says. 4,000 barley cakes would not be enough to feed everybody. What Philip lacked was vision. And what is essential in the work of the Lord his vision, God's vision. A person must be able to see beyond the mundane, beyond the physical, beyond the financial, and consider what can God do? Finances may not make sense. Physical needs may not make sense. What can God do with this? And see, Philip's problem was he was so consumed with the raw facts that it clouded his faith. He was so enthralled with common sense calculations that he missed the opportunity before him. 
Instead of him saying, Lord, if you want to feed them, feed them. <laughs> we'll watch you do it. I'm just going to step back and watch what you do. Instead, Philip stood up and said, Lord, it simply can't be done. Now, get that picture, folks. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Creator, by whom all things consist, is standing before him. And Philip says, nah, no way to do it. No way to do it. <laughs> I wonder how many opportunities that we miss. Because we don't, we don't see God work because we decide ahead of time the task is too great or the challenge is too large and it simply can't be done. And all the while, God has a plan on how to make that happen if you and I would just step out of the way and let him do it. Just get out of the way. God can do things only he can do. We simply need to step out of the way and let him do it. That is the lesson Philip needed to learn. Philip needed to see that this pragmatic, common-sense approach needed to be set aside. He needed to place full faith in what God can do. Instead of figuring out every detail for himself, he simply needed to step back and let God handle all the details. And when we are faced with a challenge, folks, we can assess that challenge. We can decide what action we might take, but never allow our focus on all those things, what we need to do to cloud the fact that God is able and God desires to do great things in our lives if we simply let him do it. And that is true of individuals, and that is true of a church. Just let him do it. Take your hands off of it and just let him do it. And God will do things only God can do. And you, when you watch that happen, you'll say to yourselves, no way we could have done that. That had to be God. That had to be God. And that's when faith is built. That's the first example there in John chapter 6. Now turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. That's the first glimpse we have into Philip's character and the lessons he had to learn as he developed his faith as a disciple. Here is the next one in John chapter 12. Look at verse 20, John chapter 12, verse 20. It says, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Now let me stop there. Based on my experience in life as a believer in Jesus Christ, that is a very unique experience. It is not often when somebody walks up to you and says, We want to know more about Jesus Christ. We want to see Jesus. That doesn't happen very often. Most of the time, people are trying to avoid you if you talk about Jesus Christ. Here's a group of fellows who came to him and said, we want to see Jesus. Now, it's not clear if these were God-fearing Gentiles or Jewish proselytes who were coming to worship at the Passover. Whatever reason they were there, they knew that Jesus was in the area, and they wanted to meet Jesus Christ. And whatever reason, for whatever reason, they sought out Philip to make that request. Maybe it's because he had a Greek name, or maybe he had the reputation of being the organizer of the group. But again, whatever the reason, he was the one they asked to arrange a meeting with Jesus Christ. Now, it's not a difficult request. Jesus is right there. I mean, just down the few blocks, there he is. So it's not difficult to meet him. No complex arrangements had to be made. Jesus Christ was right there. All Philip had to do was take these fellows and walk them over to where Jesus Christ was and introduce them to Jesus Christ. Now, maybe that was a sticking point for Philip. Jesus had made clear to them on several occasions he had not come to the Gentiles. Matthew 15, 24, he said, uh, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, when he was first sending out his disciples, he told them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Go not in the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus Christ made it clear when he first came that was his primary goal, his primary purpose. 
Now, Philip, being a literal, by-the-book person, must have heard that and said, you know what? If that's what he said, he doesn't want to meet any Gentiles. He only wants to meet Jews. These guys are Gentiles. No reason to take them. Jesus doesn't want to see them. Now, that is not at all what Jesus Christ meant. In those statements, Jesus Christ was setting the priority for his ministry. He had come to meet with the Jews first. Uh, since that, it was their kingdom he was bringing to them. And they were the main focus of his ministry. However, remember Luke chapter 19 and verse 10? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Any person lost, Jesus Christ came to see. Not just Jewish lost people, anybody who was lost. So in general, Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. If these fellows were lost, Jesus Christ came to them, whether they were Jews or Gentiles. didn't matter. In John chapter 1, verse 11, verses I'm sure you know well, he came unto his own, and his own received them not. But to as many as received him, Jews or Gentiles, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. You're aware in the book of Acts, when the Jews rejected, the Lord's message went to whoever would receive him. However, Philip took a very strict approach. And because he took a strict approach, he might have missed all of that. He didn't see anywhere in the manual where Greeks were supposed to have an audience with Jesus Christ. It just wasn't in the book anywhere, the book that he had created. So it's very possible on that basis he resisted the whole idea. However, Philip was also a disciple. He had a heart for people to come and know Jesus Christ. That was the whole purpose of following Jesus Christ in the first place. So he knew he wanted these guys to see Jesus. He just couldn't see himself doing it because that broke the rules. And so what he did, he took the Greeks to Andrew and explained to Andrew what they wanted. And we saw a couple of weeks ago, Andrew was that one who always took people to Jesus Christ. Philip knew if he took them to Andrew, these guys would meet Jesus. He wouldn't have to take them and break the rules, but they would still meet Jesus Christ. He solved the whole problem. Look at verse 22. Philip cometh and tell, tell Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Andrew was the perfect solution. Now, what Philip demonstrates here for us is the battle that can go on between our heads and our hearts. The battle that goes on between our heads and our hearts. In Philip's heart, he knew the right thing to do. He knew the right thing was to get them to Jesus. But you see, his head got in the way. His logic, his intellect, his rules got in the way of him doing the right thing. We saw a couple of weeks ago that James had a great zeal, and we saw what happens when zeal takes over. It can create some problems, make some foolish decisions, and get in the way of God's plan with overzealous zeal. However, so, so I believe I should say that we do need to approach things rationally and logically and not do things that are irrational emotionally. However, however, don't ever let your plan get in the way of God's plan. <laughs> Don't ever let your plan get in the way of God's plan. Never hold on to the rules so closely and so tightly that we close the door on something that God really wants to do. I think there are times I've done this. Maybe you have as well. I think there are times I thought myself right out of God's plan. I've gone through this whole process in my mind and decided this has got to be the way to go, even though I never included God in the whole deal. I think there are times I think myself out of God's plan, and that's the very reason why everything that we do must be surrendered completely to the control of the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is the one who bridges the gap between your head and your heart. He bridges that gap for us. And so seeking God's guidance from the very beginning, we consider the facts, we develop an approach, and once we do that, we take all that in faith and we give it to the God and we take our hands off of it and let him do whatever he wants to do in that situation, whatever is best. There are times, I'm going to tell you something, folks. If you don't know this yet, you're going to learn it as you go along. There are times when God will do things in your life that are totally irrational. 
You'll watch him work, and you'll say, what in the world is God doing? I can't figure this out for the life of me. What in the world is he doing with my life? And when that happens, just let God be God. Just let him do what he does. Uh, don't get in the way of that. Don't let him, don't, don't complicate the issue. Just let God do what he does. Because you see, we must allow God to influence not only our heads, but also influence our hearts. And if I will allow God to do both, then God's plan and not my plan is fulfilled. And God's plan is always better than my plan. Every time, 100%. His plan is always better. Just let him do what he wants to do. Philip's heart told him what the right thing to do was. His head almost got in the way. Fortunately, because he truly had a heart for God, he was able to get past his head and do the right thing. God gives us wisdom. God gives us common sense. If we add faith to our wisdom and our common sense, we'll walk in the way that God wants us to go, and God's plan will always be fulfilled. So we allow our heads and our hearts to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Now go to John chapter 14. A couple of pages over. Here is the third event that shows us something about Philip. And I'm sad to say, not a great thing. This is not going to be a wonderful truth about Philip that you're going to see here this morning. John chapter 14, Jesus Christ is in the upper room with his disciples. The last night of his ministry, he is on the eve of his crucifixion. It's clear that even after training them for three and a half years, the faith of the disciples has still not grown where it needs to be. And sadly, Philip is going to be the one who will give us the clearest demonstration of that lack of faith. As you read through this passage, you'll see that Jesus Christ's heart was heavy. He knew what he was facing in just a few short hours. And he's giving his disciples final instructions before he is taken away from them. So he tells them he's going to send his Holy Spirit to them to be with them while he's gone. He told them he was sending them out as sheep among wolves. He told them not to be troubled and to look forward to the comfort they find one day in the place that he was preparing for them. He told them he'd return and receive them to that place when the time was right. Now, the disciples are there, they're hearing all this, but they're kind of confused by everything Jesus Christ is saying. They simply can't grasp the full meaning of what Jesus Christ is telling them. And I'm guessing that Thomas spoke for the group when he said at verse 5, look at verse 5. Thomas, speaking for the group, says this, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Uh, Thomas is fully and totally confused. Lord, we don't have any idea what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're, the way you're taking. We don't understand any of this. And Jesus Christ says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It should have been clear to the disciples by now that Jesus Christ was speaking of his return to heaven to see the Father. And the only way to join them there was through faith in him. By the way, just as an aside, that verse I just read to you is one of the most hated verses in this inclusive culture. (laughs) They hate that verse. Jesus Christ says there, there is only one path to fellowship with the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's it. No other way. Not all roads lead to God. Don't let anybody ever tell you that, and don't believe it if you hear it. Not all roads lead to God. There are some roads that lead directly to the lake of fire. The most sincere Hindu, the most sincere Buddhist, the most sincere Muslim, the most sincere Mormon is headed to hell if they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't care how sincere they are. I don't care how long they've been following it. It doesn't matter at all. Jesus Christ says, I am the way. No other way. No other way. I know the world has a hard time with that, and they try to talk every way around it. That is simply what Jesus Christ said, the most exclusive statement ever regarding eternal life. And he didn't add one qualifier to it. 
That was it. If we're going to carry his message to this world, folks, that's the message. Present it just like he did, without apology and without qualifying it. I am the way, Jesus Christ said. Then look at verse 7. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. And henceforth you know him and have seen him. Now, there are Christians I have talked to, maybe you've talked to them as well, who wish that Jesus Christ had been more clear about the fact that he was God. They wish he had been more, made a more definitive statement about the fact that he was truly God in the flesh. It can't get any clearer than what Jesus Christ says here in verse 7. He says, if you've known me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. If you've talked with me, you've talked with God. No matter what the cults or the modernists say, Jesus Christ was God. He had to be God. If he's going to do all that he did, if he's going to complete this plan of salvation for you and for I, uh, he had to be God. And it was at that point that Philip spoke up. Look at verse 8. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. With all that Jesus Christ has just said, after following Jesus Christ for as long as he had, his request is, Lord, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Show us the Father. No sadder statement could ever come from the lips of Philip. Philip has seen Jesus Christ cast out devils. He has seen Jesus Christ heal people. He has seen Jesus Christ raise people from the dead. He has spent time with Jesus Christ and fellowshiped with him for days on end. If he had truly known Jesus Christ, he never would have made that request. He spent three and a half years with a father on earth, and somehow Philip missed it. He missed the whole idea. And so Jesus Christ says in verse 9, have I been so long with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? Have I spent so much time with you, Philip, and you still don't know me? And then look what he says. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Philip, I've been with you for almost three and a half years. You've seen me over and over and over again. You've seen me. Why do you say unto me, show me the Father? When Philip first met Jesus Christ, he showed a true faith in who Jesus Christ was, proclaimed him as the Messiah. What happened to that faith? After spending years of time with Jesus Christ, he asked Jesus Christ to show him the Father. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Almost unbelievably, Jesus Christ says, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Philip, Philip, you've watched what I've done. You've seen how I've operated. At least believe in me for the works that I've done. Nobody could have done what I do. Believe me for that, if for nothing more. Listen to me. Philip has spent three years gazing into the face of the Father. Three years spent looking in the eyes of God himself, and yet his earthly thinking and his practical, logical, skeptical approach and his obsession with small details had caused him to miss the full comprehension of who Jesus Christ really was. Now, you say, what a depressing thought to close on. Well, it's not. It's not. I'm going to ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud. Just think to yourself. Why would Jesus Christ choose a man like that to be a disciple? <laughs> I mean, this guy spent three and a half years with Jesus Christ, and at the end of that time, still didn't know who he was. Philip didn't learn who Jesus Christ was till after the resurrection. Like many of the disciples as well, they got the full picture then. 
Why would Jesus Christ choose Philip? What in the world was Jesus Christ thinking when he chose Philip to be a disciple? I want you to turn to a verse, and I know you know it well. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. Because this is the explanation. These are the words of Jesus Christ to the Apostle Paul. But I want you to see what Jesus Christ says here and then apply that to what we're looking at here with Philip this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. As Paul struggles with his thorn in the flesh, trying to figure out why God is doing what he's doing, ask him three times to remove that thorn from him, and Jesus Christ does not remove it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, God gives the answer to him why he did what he did. My grace is sufficient for thee. Look at it. For my strength is made perfect. In weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. We probably couldn't meet a man whose strength was weaker and whose faith was weaker than that of Philip. He was so consumed with his plans. He was so consumed with his way of thinking that he just let faith sit by the wayside. But the faith was there. The faith was there. We saw evidence of that early on. He had faith. We saw faith when he introduced those men to Jesus Christ through Andrew. We saw his faith. So the faith was there. Listen to me. And in the hands of Jesus Christ, small faith can become great faith. In the hands of Jesus Christ, small skills can become great skills. In the hands of Jesus Christ, human weakness can become supernatural strength. In the hands of Jesus. And if we fast forward a few years, we find Philip in Acts chapter 8. Philip is conducting a great, great, a Holy Spirit revival. And at the same time, out in the desert, there is a Gentile reading the book of Isaiah, has no idea whatsoever what what he's reading, has no clue what he's looking at. And who does God call upon to help that Gentile? God lifts Philip out of that revival, plops him right there in the desert, and Philip leads the first Gentile to Jesus Christ. There it is. Small faith can become great faith. Human weakness can become supernatural strength. By the way, if you read Acts chapter 8, you're going to find that Philip never walked out into the desert. God picked him up and plopped him in the desert. He had that much trust in Philip to do the right thing. He didn't want to take time for Philip to walk there. He put him there to make sure he got that fellow taken care of. Church history tells us that before Philip was stoned to death, he led multitudes of souls to Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something, folks, and you know this. There is not one person in this room, not one person listening today, who does not have liabilities. You bring some weakness with you. You bring some traits with you. You bring some habits with you. You bring some stuff with you that's not the best stuff to bring. There is not one person in this room who doesn't have some trait or some personality characteristic or some way of thinking that interferes with their faith and with getting God's work done. Can I tell you the great news this morning, folks? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Listen to me. Recognize your weakness. Recognize you can't do it by yourself. Recognize you bring things into this situation that work against what God wants to do. Look at all that, and then not because of us, but in spite of us, God can take our weakness and use it to demonstrate his supernatural strength. Amen, amen, and amen. If you don't say it, I will. (laughs) What do you do? Surrender your mind to Jesus Christ. Give it to him. Surrender your thoughts to Jesus Christ. Surrender your way of thinking to Jesus Christ. 
Surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. Surrender your will and your emotions and your desires. Surrender those to Jesus Christ. Let the Holy Spirit take control of your mind. Let the Holy Spirit get control of your heart. Give him what you have, whatever that might be, whatever you see as a liability, whatever you see as a weakness. Just give it to him. He is the only one that can take those weaknesses and make something out of them. No person on earth can do that. Jesus Christ can do that. And if you'll give those things to him, and if I'll give those things to him, he'll take those things and mold them and structure them and infuse them and make you the exact servant that God wants you to be. He can do it. And any person who will do that will be used by God in amazing ways. And most of all, like Philip, through our lives, God will use us to lead souls to the Savior. Listen to me. I want to be that person, and hopefully you do as well. I want to be that person when there's some soul wandering out there in the desert. God says, you know who to get that person to? Sabacha needs to see him. Because I know Sabacha will do something with him. That's who I want to be. And I can be that person as I surrender my mind and my heart to Jesus Christ and let him take control of all of it. He can do that work if you let him do it this morning. Let's pray.